Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, happy Lord's Day to you all. So glad that you're back with us again today uh, for our morning worship time. Uh, thank you for taking time out to join us in worship today. Uh, as I always like to do, I want to acknowledge and thank our awesome worship team for blessing us with spirited song and uplifting music as we prepare to uh, get into this lesson today. Uh, a couple things I want to remind you of, and one is that I encourage you all to uh, engage with us uh, during this time. Uh, let us know your thoughts, your comments, your amens, your whatever it is that uh, you may want to share with us. Feel free to do that, and there will be someone that will be interacting with you uh, in those comments, so please do that and share the video, uh, the live, share it with everyone so that we can have as many as possible join us this morning. Uh, one thing before we jump into the lesson, uh, we will be gathering here at the campus on next Sunday, the 24th. So all of you have probably seen the reopening plan. So know that we'll be doing that. If you are comfortable coming out, you're welcome to come. We have things in place uh, for all of you. And so we look forward to that. Uh, today, now, then, we are still in the series that we started last Sunday in the book of Esther. Remember last Sunday, we started this series in Esther. And we're on part two of that series today. So today, we're, last week we were in Esther chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 up to verse 18. Today, we'll pick up with Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, which is verse 15. We'll go all the way through that, and we'll try to cover as much of that as we can. Amen. Now, you know that we entitled this entire series that we're going through God's Providence, God's Providence. And it seems to be, uh, for me at least, uh, something that is at the top of mind right now, uh, not only because of what we're going through, but but it, certainly it is applicable. It does apply to what we're going through with our current uh, situation in our world and in our nation uh, with this virus situation. We do need to be uh, confident in the fact that God's providence is still prevalent. And so we uh, have entitled this series as well as our Wednesday evening devotional series through the book of Genesis and the story uh, of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50, entitled it the same thing because they are similar stories in that God's providence is present in both. So if you would, uh, if, you, if you'd allow me to, I'd like to begin this morning uh, by reminding you of the definition of God's providence that I shared with all of you last week, and then I shared it again in part with you on Wednesday evening. And here it is. This is kind of my version of it, the first part. And then the second part of it is borrowed from someone. But the first part says this. God is always behind the scenes, orchestrating, synchronizing and synthesizing to accomplish his own purposes. That's what that's what God's providence is. It is the work of God whereby he integrates and blends events in the universe in order to fulfill his original design for which it was created. That is the definition, the description of God's providence. I love what John Piper says about God's providence. Can I share a quote with you from John Piper? He says this about God's providence. He says, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life rather is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback, 
And the point of life is winding in a troubled road. Uh, it's a switchback and a switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads that God is for us in all these strange terms. That's what Piper said. He goes on to say God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. This is a vivid picture of God's providence and how it is at work. As I said before, there is no mention of God in the book of Esther, in the entire book, no mention of God. There's no prayer in Esther. There's no prophecy in Esther. There's no miracles present in Esther. There is no apparent appearance of Jesus, nor mention of his coming in Esther. All of this being the case, God's hand of providence is all over this story. It's all over this story. And it's directly tied to God's providence in this story is directly tied to the covenant promises he's made to his people, beginning with the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he promises that Jesus Christ, uh, that, that he says will be the seed uh, of the offspring of Mary, would, would wound and bruise Satan's head, although Satan would wound and bruise his heel. It's a promise that he makes to those of us that are part of his family that he will prevail. And then all the way through Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 17 with his covenant that he makes with Abraham. God's providence is there. It's, it, it's, it's all the way through that it, it, his providence in Esther is tied to these earlier promises. Right. Genesis three, Genesis 12, Genesis 17. So when we left off last week, we left off last week, we had been introduced to some central characters in the story, in the opening of this story. We had met King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes the king. We had met Vashti, his wife and queen. We had met Mordecai. And lastly, last week, we met Esther herself. Esther, who is Mordecai's orphaned cousin, who he had taken in as his daughter, now at that point, when we ended last week, she had been chosen to replace Vashti as queen because of Vashti's refusal to be put on shameful public display, display to strange men by her husband, the king. She refuses it, and because of it, it angers the king, and he decides to listen to those that were servants in his kingdom who, who suggested to him that Bastai should be removed as queen and there should be another one brought in. And so they have this beauty pageant and this preparation time, and Esther is chosen to be the next king. We looked at last week, we looked at some lessons learned from each of these characters and even how we could possibly see the scarlet thread of Christ in each of them. Although Christ is not mentioned, he's not present there. We do see uh, this thread of Christ that we can see in them either by contrast as it was with King Xerxes or by comparison, which we looked at in all of these other characters. So today we move from what is kind of the introduction of the story 
into the meat and the action of this legendary and celebrated account in biblical history. We move into that. As I said last week, we looked at lessons from these characters today. I'd like to begin with, I'd like to begin the, today with uh, more lessons from Mordecai. More lessons from Mordecai. And our lesson today our message today, our teaching paragraph today begins in chapter two, verse 19. And so we start in chapter two, verse 19, and I'll read now to chapter three, verse one. And in this passage, I think we're going to find some additional lessons. Now, by the way, there are lessons from Mordecai all throughout this story. And so here, I just think we'll see some more in addition to the ones that we saw last week. So let's look at it. Beginning in chapter two, verse 19. Here's what it says. Now, when the when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. But Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In these days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to knowledge to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Chapter three, verse one. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. This is what happens at the end of chapter two and then the beginning of chapter three. This is this is what what happens. Uh, uh, verses 17 through 18 of chapter two ended with the spotlight on Esther, who's now queen. Beginning in verse 19, she takes a back seat and the focus shifts to Mordecai and a new character who we'll meet in just a moment. Verse 21 in verse 21, we find Mordecai, text says, who's sitting at the king's gate, sitting at the king's gate. What, what, what's the significance of this? What what does it mean? What does this phrase mean? Seemingly, here's what it means. Seemingly, Mordecai has been appointed to an official position, which is why he's now sitting at the king's gate. Here is how it worked in Susa. Men who had been appointed by Xerxes would sit around this area and perform the duties of a judge or a lawyer for the people of Susa who might have a dispute or a legal matter that they need handled. Mordecai had been had taken a position as one of these men. And as he's sitting there one day, he hears these two men, Big Fan and Teresh, plotting against the king to kill him. These were high-ranking, trusted men, trusted high-ranking officials in King Xerxes' court. But even though they were high-ranking and trusted, they were plotting in the background to take him out, to assassinate him. They were not the only ones plotting. In fact, it was, it was, it was not uncommon 
for there to be uh, assassination attempts planned against Xerxes. In fact, he ultimately met his demise at the hand of one of his eunuchs in his bedroom at his palace. It's how his life was ended. They were always out to take him out. And so Mordecai hears the plot. He gets word then to Esther, who's living in the palace as the new queen. He knows she has direct access to the king and she does. And so what she does is she passes this information on to Xerxes. He investigates the matter. The plot is found to be true. And these men are then executed by hanging. They're executed by hanging. Now, 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 what, what you have to understand is this, as we make our way to chapter three, verse one, there's a normal protocol that's in place in Persia when something like this happens. The normal protocol was that the person responsible for uncovering and reporting such a plot would normally be rewarded for saving the king's life. Now, because we've already met Mordecai, we kind of know Mordecai's character. We, we know that it's likely that Mordecai probably didn't do what he did to be rewarded or to be recognized. But that being the case, it was expected protocol that whoever did this would be honored and recognized. But instead of this happening, according to chapter three, verse one, instead of Mordecai being recognized and rewarded, uh, he's passed over for this new character that we haven't ever even heard of before. This new character that shows up on the scene is elevated and promoted instead of Mordecai and his name is Haman. We meet Haman now and Haman is not just honored. He's actually placed as second in command behind Xerxes. Second in command as Mordecai is passed over. It brings up a question. Right. It brings up a question, it brings a question to my mind and it should raise a question in your mind. Here's the question. How does Mordecai respond to the snub? How does he respond to the snub? Now, I can just tell you uh, how most of you would respond and how probably I would respond. It would likely not be pretty. It would likely be in anger. But how does Mordecai respond? Well, we get the answer to how Mordecai would respond in verse two, the first part of verse two. First part of verse two of chapter three say this. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down. We're going to talk about that in a minute and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. We'll talk about the significance of that in a minute. Right now, I just want you to see what how he responded to the snub. Here's how he responded. He continues to go to the king's gate just like normal. And continues to do his job just like normal, although he had been passed over, although he had been snubbed, although all of this had happened, he had been ignored and for years had passed by. He still is faithfully going to the king's gate and doing his job just as if nothing has happened. There is a lesson in that for us. Uh, we learned a lot of lessons last week in looking at, Mount, at Mordecai. Today we learned this one, uh, although he doesn't know it. He will be rewarded later in the story because watch this delayed is not denied. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just being faithful. He doesn't realize that his 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 reward, his blessing is going to come later. Uh, and here it is. Delayed is not denied. We learn that from Mordecai, especially when you handle the delay properly. That's a lesson for us. 
because every now and then God will allow us to go through some delays and God may not reveal to us what is going to happen later. Uh, but he does remind us that delay does not equal denied. But what happens is and what we learn from Mordecai is that we need to respond properly while we're in delay mode, while we're in our delay. We need to be faithful. We need to continue to serve God, worship God and do everything that we've been doing, uh, not just as we wait. Because delayed is not denied. So first, uh, we, we, we see more lessons from Mordecai in the text, right? More there are more lessons than that, but I just want to point that one out to you. More lessons from Mordecai. Next thing I see is this, a renewed rivalry. A renewed rivalry. It's in verses 2 through 7 of chapter 3. Let's read it. I read uh, verse 2 a minute ago. I want to read that again, and I want to read up to verse 7. Here's what it says. Verse 2 again. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, who is at the gate, did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when and when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. He's revealed it to them. Hadn't been revealed before then. He told, tells them he's a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, not just Haman, but all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, not just Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people, all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. This is what happens, right? And so in this, let's talk about this renewed rivalry. Let's talk about it. Why does Mordecai not bow down? And why does Haman become so angry? There's a reason, right? There's a reason. There is more going on than what meets the eye. Initially, we get the impression that Mordecai is responding the same way that the Hebrew boys responded to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3, refusing to bow down out of reverence for his God or for their God, right? We, we, we think, we, we see that, and we, we, we want to believe that this is the reason that Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. But to really understand what's happening, we need to take a close look at who Mordecai and Haman are. To get a real picture of what's going on in this, in, in this encounter, we need, to, we need to really understand their background and who they are. Who is Haman? What's his background? What's his lineage? How does it fit into this narrative? The text tells us that Haman is an Agagite. This takes us back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. You'll recall in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul had been anointed king after the people complained to God that they wanted a king. God instructs Saul later after he had been anointed to attack the Amalekites because, because of how they had attacked and ravaged God's people Israel. He says to uh, Saul, go in. God instructs Saul to destroy everything 
in Amalek, destroy everything, animals, people, everything you come across, destroy it and wipe it out. But Saul, you'll remember, disobediently spares King Agag and takes him captive instead, along with some of the animals. He's confronted late and tries to deny it. And Samuel confronts him. And Samuel says, yeah, 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 I understand all of that. But listen, I know you're lying to me because what's, what's all the bleeding of the sheep out here in the background? You have you have disobeyed God. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Benjaminite. Mordecai is also a Benjaminite. This begins a long standing rivalry, a family feud, if you will, between the two people groups, which now being which is now being played out in the book of Esther. Haman being an Agagite, Mordecai being a Benjaminite, it was a deep seated hatred that had been bred into Haman for Mordecai's people. Uh, since he was born, it was bred into him that you, you are supposed to hate this people for no other reason but that you are supposed to do that. In fact, it's likely that Haman would have attempted to somehow destroy the Jews even if he had never encountered Mordecai at all. He hated them so much that it's likely he would have come up with a way or a reason to destroy them. There is a contrast, by the way, between Mordecai, who's seen as positive, and Haman, who's seen as negative. This contrast is observed even today. The Jews, the Jewish people, even today observe an annual celebration called Purim, based on the story of Esther and is named after the word pure that we see, that we saw there in verse 7. The word pure, which means lots. Purim is a Jewish holiday which commemorates the saving of the Jewish people from Haman. It, the, the Jewish people today look back, they celebrate what happens in Esther as, as, as the people were saved from Haman. Having found out that Mordecai is Jewish then, right? Uh, Haman has now found it out. It was a secret, but now it's out in the open. It's, it's been found out. Haman plans to kill not just Mordecai, but the entire Jewish minority in the empire. So obtained Ahasuerus permission and funds to execute, execute this plan. He cast lots of Purim in verse seven to choose the date on which to do this. And they landed on the 13th of the month of the month Adar. Is when they decided that this would happen. All of the Jews would be wiped out on this one single day, right? Purim is celebrated among Jews today by exchanging gifts of food and drink, donating charity to the poor, eating a celebratory meal, public reading aloud of what's called the scroll of Esther or the Megillah. It's, that's what it's called. And they read it aloud. Usually they read it in the synagogue. Out loud as they celebrate this festival, this celebration of Purim. And while reading this, while having this celebration, when Haman's name is read out loud, uh, the public chanting uh, during the public chanting and reading of the Megillah in the synagogue. This happens 54 times as they do this chant, as they read this uh, Megillah. It happens 54 times that Haman's name comes up. The congregation engages in noise making to blot out his name. It's how much they despise Haman and how much they celebrate the fact that God delivered the Jewish people in that day from Haman. 
And so first we had uh, more lessons from Mordecai. Then we moved on to this renewed rivalry and contrast between Mordecai and Haman. Lastly, I'd like to take a look at Haman's dastardly plan because he comes up with a dastardly plan. He comes up with this dastardly plan to take out all the Jews, right? It's in verses 8 through 15. Let me read it for you. It says this. Then in verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Till it please the king, uh, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have chained, who have charge of the king's business that they may put into into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first, first month and, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with, it, with, the signet, with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy the king, to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day the 13th day of the month of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be read for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Thrown in confusion. The plan now is hatched. You just heard it. You just read it. There's this plan that has been hatched by Haman. Plan is hatched. It's actually, though, not necessarily a new. The plan itself may be new, but the idea is not new. It's actually an age old plot, not unique to Haman at all. Haman was not the first nor the last to come up with and attempt such a plan against God's people. But every time, here's what I like about our God, the God that we serve, every time the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. I don't care how the enemy comes. I don't care what the plan is. Every time the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Let me share and recount some stories about this and how this happens in Scripture. You'll recall that God, through Moses, had secured the release of his people from Egyptian bondage. But as they approached the Red Sea, you remember the story? They noticed Pharaoh's chariots in the distance. Not knowing what else to do, Moses petitioned God and he made a highway through the Red Sea so they could walk through safely on dry land. It was a plan. It was a plot created by Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of that day, to wipe out God's people. But God shows up and intervenes. 
There was, if you're not familiar with that one, there was an attempt by a nine foot tall giant to take out God's people in the valley of Elah one day. But God had a brave shepherd boy named David with a slingshot and five smooth stones who said these words. You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And I read where David took that joker out with a smooth stone and a slingshot. The spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against the enemy. What about this one in Second Chronicles chapter 20? Uh, word got out to Jehoshaphat that the Moabites and the Ammonites were preparing to attack. You'll recall that Jehoshaphat was afraid, but he called a nationwide fast and held a service to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat prayed, Jehoshaphat prayed a powerful prayer during that service, and God answered his prayer through a man by the name of Jehazel, who reminded them that the battle was not theirs, but God's. The next morning, the text says, Jehoshaphat stationed uh, what we can describe as a praise team in front of the armed forces as they made their way to battle to sing praise songs as they went up to battle. They, they had already been in the presence of God and, and they had been reminded that the battle is not theirs, but it belongs to God. And so while they were on their way, they were singing praise songs and worshiping God. And God caused the enemy forces then to turn on each other. Uh, God's people didn't have to lift a finger. God caused them to turn on each other. And soon all Judah could find on the battle field were enemy corpses and their possessions with they, which they took to be their own. Because no matter what the enemy's plan is, God will always lift up a standard against it. Without giving away the ending of the story of Esther, there will be a similar ending to this story. Now, if none of those stories are familiar to you, if you're not familiar with the Exodus, if you're not familiar with David and Goliath, if you're not familiar with Jehoshaphat and how he prayed and God showed up, uh, if you're not familiar with any of those, you might recognize this one. It was one Friday. Out on a hill called Calvary, just outside the city of Jerusalem, the enemy thought that he had won as Jesus hung, bled, and died on an old rugged cross. There must have been a celebration going on in hell. All night, Friday night, they must have been partying. They must have partied all day. Saturday, Satan and his demons and his imps, they must have had a party Saturday during the day and Saturday during the night. But I remember the text saying that early Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, there was a standard lifted when Jesus got up with all power in his hands because the Lord will always lift up a standard as he does in Esther. I'd like to share with you as we close this poem by William Copper as we close. The poem is entitled Providence, Light Shining Out of Darkness. And here's what it says. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in the unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and his works 
his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. God's providence. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you're always there just as you was, just as you were for Mordecai, for Esther and your people there. We know that you're here for us right now. We know that any time, Lord God, there is a plan, a plot that you've already you already know about it and that you already have something to counter. And so we thank you that you countered the enemy's attack ultimately by sending Jesus. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for your providence over our lives. Glory to your name. We thank you. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you all again. Uh, Listen, glad that you're with us. I pray that you receive something from uh, that passage in Esther that blessed you, that that will encourage you to keep running, to keep pressing so that you can see what the end will be like. Right. Uh, We thank God for his for his uh, providence, his power uh, and his presence in our lives right now. I encourage you uh, to pray and seek the Lord. And if you don't know him. As I always like to end with, pray and ask him to come into your heart. He will. He'll do it. He'll wash you. He'll clean you and he'll make you brand new. We thank you again for being with us. Don't forget to join us next Sunday. uh, If you're able to here in person at Bethel Hope, we're at 504 West 32nd Street in North Tyler. Uh, Come out and be with us if you can. And if you're able to, we'd love to see you. Uh, But if you do that, please go on our website. There'll be a place there to, to register for coming we'd like to have a spot for you so let us know that you're coming you can rsvp we have we've made we've made a lot of special preparations for those of you that will be here so we we hopefully uh, will have a safe environment Uh, god bless you all until we see you again uh, we will be live again though uh, on facebook as well so for those of you that can't make it you can watch us live on facebook god bless you and god keep you is my prayer god bless